Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It is fantastic to be back, Paul. Our guest on the show this week, for a bit of a change of pace, uh, I think is one of the most interesting people in the uh, investment uh, and financial markets community in Australia. It's John Hempton, founder and chief investment officer at Bronte Capital. John, welcome on the show. Glad to be here. So most of the time we talk about, um, you know, macro events and, uh, you know, central bank policy on the show. Um, but, um, you know, I have had a few conversations over the years, uh, and I've always found them fascinating, um, particularly uh, in terms of how you think about companies uh, and, uh, you know, um, how you think about then investment strategies that are appropriate to those companies. So um, for a bit of a, um, uh, a uh you know, a bit of a change of pace for the show. Uh, we're going to talk about how John sees businesses when uh, he looks at them. He's got um, Bronte Capital, which is um, a, a well-known hedge fund, um, both well-known here in Australia, but also very well-known on Wall Street. Uh, and John, you recently uh, closed the fund to, to new money, so yeah, congratulations. It was a privilege. We finally got to an amount of money which was straining our capacity on the short side. We have a short book that chases scumbags. We have thousands of scumbags in our database. I didn't name them partly because I don't want to attract defamation suits and partly because I don't want to attract copycats. But we find bad people and short stocks associated with them, and we do that largely by computer. That is a scale-limited ability. Um, product. We can't find $10 billion worth. We could probably find a billion dollars worth at the moment simply because markets are very high. But I don't think we could even find half a billion dollars worth most of the time. So we have that sort of short book and we run a long book against it. We're not particularly scale limited on the long side. So we actually have some very big American investors and we agreed that we would close the general fund for a, few, for a couple of years whilst we built out the computer database when we hit scale. And we've done that. Um, it's actually an interesting time though because it's the first time for a while that I felt like I've got a few longs and a lot of shorts. And normally if I look at the market I think I can either find shorts at will but I can't find longs or I can find longs at will but it's very hard to find the 100, short, 100 small short positions we have. And at the moment, I seem to be able to find both. And maybe that's just because it's sort of becoming a more narrow market. There's a sort of iconic thing that happens as a bull market goes on and on and on, which is the momentum guys win. And the momentum guys buy stocks whenever they're going up. And eventually, one of them breaks. This morning, it just happened to be Facebook that broke, but I don't know whether that's a permanent thing or not, but Facebook's down 20. And so now the momentum guys are going to wind up finding other stocks. And the market becomes narrower and narrower, and the bits that are not momentum get ignored. The iconic time when there was cheap stocks available on a widespread scale was happened to be 2000, which was the height of the um, dot-com bubble. And during the height of the dot-com bubble, if you were not a dot-com stock, or you were perceived to be something that the dot-com people would put out of business, your stock was trading at seven or eight times earnings. Now, some of those really were worth seven or eight times earnings, right, because they really were put out of business, but others weren't. So the next five to six years were the sort of 
grand period of the bearded value investors, these self-righteous guys who think that they, they're smarter than everybody else because they only buy stocks with low PEs. And so for the next five years, you could, you know, everybody with a beard and a sort of self-righteous, I want to be Warren Buffett attitude outperformed. And then the financial crisis came along and some of those that were bad businesses were carried away. So I know a few value investors who had a lot of General Motors, for instance. And then came the real resurgence of tech, where tech became completely dominant in the world and slowly destroyed business after business after business. So a lot of those things that were trading at seven times earnings were worth seven times earnings, but went via 15 or 18 along the way. Um, now we're seeing a, a, a still a fairly narrow market, but it's not narrow like 2000. It's right. But within it, there are little pockets that are not diabolically expensive. Nothing outside emerging markets is very cheap, though. And I know nothing about emerging markets, so um, I don't have very much money there. I, and even some of the emerging markets um, don't even seem that cheap. I, I had a long chat to a big brewer in Turkey a while back. And I figured that, you know, a brewer in a country that's a Muslim country, one secular now becoming more Muslim, with the currency falling like a stone, has got to be a cheap stock, was my thought. And it was two times sales. EV to sales was two times. And if I go back 15 years, every brewer in the world was EV to sales two times, right? I was hoping for sort of 0.3 sales or something ridiculous where... If, I went, if it went right, I was going to make five times my money. But it looked to me as if if it went right, I broke even. Now, it's down still in US dollars, but that's mostly because the Turkish lira keeps falling. So even the emerging markets are not that cheap. But I'm starting to find things. I mean, I found something to buy this week. I'm not even going to talk to you about it because I haven't bought a big enough position. And let's face it, there are people I talk to first. Um, including my wife, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. But the um, that's the risk manager. Right? That's the risk management. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, we don't even have a full position yet. But at least I can own it, right? And I haven't felt there's stuff that I can own for a while. Now, stuff that makes me truly excited, I haven't found very many of those lately. I found one last year. I can tell you about that. Um, I normally don't want to talk about it because it's the. Um, that you bought. Yes, because yeah. it's the only tobacco company I've bought in years. Now, I was going to say, because one, one of the questions that Paul asked me before this is, what have you learned along the way? And I figured that a large number of the audience are either investing their money or starting a career investing other people's money, and they want to understand what you do right and wrong. And the problem is that in this business you learn all the time and a lot of those lessons were expensive, mm. right? Because learning, right? one of the things, for instance, that regulators don't like it if junior stock traders have their own positions, right? Just because, and my attitude to that is that I wish they would. And the reason is it's far cheaper for them to lose $5,000 of their own money, and it teaches them a much better lesson than it is to lose $5 million of the client's money, which they don't feel, right? And you learn, right? So the, fir the first lesson along the way is you learn from books. And the, the reason you learn from books is that most things happened before and you know, there's a lot of pattern recognition. I, I do recall uh, meeting you um, many years ago and uh, being in your office and seeing a lot of books about uh, the 
Canadian uh, stock market, uh, I think, back in the 80s. Yeah, look, we have a bookshelf at work which has maybe 400 books on financial fraud on it. Now, two-thirds of those books aren't there because we um, wanted to read them. They're there because we wanted the indexes, right? Because if somebody was a financial fraudster in 1993 and suddenly they turn up again 30 years later, they're still probably a financial fraudster. Right. Um, for a long time, you could make money just by getting Trevor Sykes' wonderful book, The Bold Riders, and looking at every hot stock and matching the boards to the index of The Bold Riders. Right. And uh, Trevor Sykes' book is still wonderful. This is a book about the 90s in Australia. Those 90s and 80s books are getting a little dated, although sometimes we're finding it's the sons of the crooks that are crooks. It's um, <laughs> remarkable. You know, financial fraud is a business that hands down family to family. But that's actually not what I was going to suggest your, your, your people read. I just figure they should read something like Kindleberger Manias and Crashes or, you know, or, um, books about past financial markets. And then they've got to learn the first lesson of history, which is, you know, that 80 years in Tudor times is the same as 80 years now. So when you read all of those school history books, you know, these trends about waves of Catholicism and then waves of Protestantism and then all, all the monasteries being knocked down and the structure of the monarchy and the relationship to the people changing, that happened over 100 years. And the people who lived it don't see it in the same way because there's sort of a big wave. And most financial things happen over seven to ten years. And it, when you read these books, you also have to take that lesson that, you know, this is where it started and this is the number of years and start building timelines. And then you get to realise what's going on. So that's the first way of not losing money. The second big lesson I learnt in life, because I'm a stock picker, is ultimately you've got to think what it is about this business that makes you want to own it. And most businesses, if you ask, what's it look like in five years, the answer is, well, competition's going to come, right? That is, that if it's earning a 17% return on assets now... Somebody's going to want a piece of that. It's going, yeah. it's going to be beaten up. And there are certain businesses that are just harder to compete with than others. Um, if you asked me to compete with Google, I'd look at you and say, got $100 billion, I'll hand it back, right? Because it's not possible, as far as I can tell. Although, you know, somebody's going to want a piece of that too. Um, in fact, the way you compete with Google is the vertical apps. So um, you want a search app for real estate, right? Don't search for real estate on Google. You search for it at realestate.com.au or domain.com.au. If you want to search for a date, you don't search for it on Google, you search for it on <laughs> Tinder, right? Um, if you want to search for camera equipment, there's probably an app for that, but I don't know how you sell it. But then the, you know, the question, how do you compete with that? Now, I'll, I'll, I'll pick a business that was the last business we bought a very large holding in. A company called Swedish Match, which is the only tobacco company in the world that doesn't sell cigarettes. 
Um, its core business is snooze, which I think is revolting stuff that Scandinavians stick up under, underneath their lip and it's absorbed through their epithelial tissue. Um, but tobacco is a wonderful business, except it kills your clients. Uh, and the reason it's a wonderful business is that it's as addictive as hell. And strangely, the addiction is an addiction as to root. So people are brand addicted. If you're a Marlboro smoker, you're a Marlboro smoker. If you're a Lucky Strike smoker, you're a Lucky Strike smoker. And, and smokers don't like changing brands. Alcoholism, for instance, is not addicted to root. If you find an alcoholic and he's drinking two-buck chuck port, if you give him wine, he'll drink it happily. If you give him beer, he'll drink it happily. If you give him spirits, he'll drink it happily. Um, there are rat experiments that show that rat, um, rats can be made addicted to cocaine by method of delivery. I've never quite worked out what the underlying psychological thing is, but tobacco is addictive, addictive linked to brand. And that makes it an astonishingly good business, except that it kills its clients. Right. But and, and governments have a lot to oh say. No, about the governments that. is yeah. wonderful here. This is the really hair raising thing. Which is I mean, I have this sort of iconic fat margin consumer product company, which is Apple. Everything about Apple smells fat margin. You walk into the shop and you know you're paying too much. Right? There are it's bound into people's psyche, you know, teenage girls are really keen to let you know that they're using a Mac rather than a Windows machine. Or, and, you know, iPhone is like the ultimate status symbol. It's got all sorts of customer lock, like, you know, the apps continue. You buy a new iPhone, it just immediately populates with all your old stuff. In other words, there are all sorts of things that make customer lock. The margin of Apple, as a manufactured good product company, is 27 it's about 39 gross and about 27 net. That 27 fluctuates a little bit because when they introduce a new iPhone, the margin comes down because the parts are expensive, but the volumes go up. And when the iPhone is a year and a half old or a year old, the volumes have dropped, but the parts are all a bit cheaper. And so the margins go up and so the margin, but it's 27. If you run a manufactured good product, company of any kind and your margin is above about 23 or 4, that requires an explanation, right? The question is, why the hell are you as good as Apple? Now, we don't own Philip Morris and I don't advocate it, but Philip Morris's margin's closer to 50. How the hell is it possible that Philip Morris earns twice the margin of Apple or almost twice the margin of Apple? And the answer is, well, you know, take in Australia, a cigarette costs about a dollar, of which 90 cents, give or take, is tax. So it's really 10 cents to Philip Morris, and it's addictive to brand. Does it matter much to Philip Morris whether it's 10 cents or 15? From Philip Morris's perspective, that's the difference between a 20% a margin and like a 70% margin, right? Which is why Philip Morris is so fat margin. So you said, you know, the governments are out, you, out after you, but I'm going to invert that and think, actually, the governments are one of the reasons why these things are so goddamn profitable. Now, the short version of Swedish Match is it's a tobacco company that doesn't sell cigarettes, and it's got volumes rising. 
It sells in Scandinavia, which are high-tax countries. You might think that that's a problem, but I've just explained to you that high-tax brand addiction, brand addiction are a good combination. And as cigarettes fall off in there, this thing has volume, physical volume growth of about seven. It's a wonderful business. And it doesn't kill its clients anything like as fast. I mean, it's probably 10 times safer than smoking. But let's go back to that sort of 27 margin business thing. Because it's in fact one of the most, almost everything we look at is a manufacturer of some kind or a provider of something that's an embedded service with a manufactured good. And we search for companies that have what I call massive mysterious margins. And the massive mysterious margin is a margin that's just a little bit too fat and requires some explanation. And when you see something with a 30% margin, sometimes that 30% margin is just cyclic. Um, BHP, at the peak of the iron ore boom, had a margin on their iron ore of 65%, right, like three apples. And I, I, I want to put that in perspective. BHP's net margin was the same as Louis Vuitton's gross margin. So take Louis Vuitton, who sells three $4,000 handbags that cost nothing to produce. They have a cost of goods sold of 35%. They make 20% net, right? The difference between 65 and 35 and 20% is all SG&A. You know, there's a hell of a lot of Wally selling if you're selling $5,000 handbags. Right. Right, BHP was fatter margin than Louis Vuitton before Louis Vuitton selling expense. And you know what's going to happen to that? It's going to get competed away because iron ore is iron ore and there are other deposits. At the other end of the world, I'll give you another one that's sort of odd. There's a company called Trex in the US, and I blogged about this, and only one person came back to me with the correct answer. Trex sells plastic decking for um, making your outdoor deck so you can sit on it and have a beer on a Saturday afternoon. And the plast- and it has about a 45% margin. In other words, almost double apple. The stock has been astonishing. It's just gone up and up and up and up further. And the cash flow is completely and utterly real. Now, all of that um, cash has come from selling a deck, decking material that has 10 different competitors at least and probably 20 has, is completely identical to stuff that you can buy at um, Walmart at, at Home Lower Depot, costs at Home Depot and is built <laughs> on capital equipment that you can buy from a, from a it's all built on the same capital equipment from an um, Italian company. It probably only cost you $10 million to set up a plant. And we spent ages trying to work out what was going on. But in fact, it's sort of an example of what we call the bribe your distributor model. The, bribe your distri- the most common way in the Western world of raising your prices and raising your sales simultaneously is to find a group of trusted intermediaries take some of the extra margin that you get from raising your prices and kick it back to them as a bribe. And the iconic example of that is mutual fund sales. So the biggest mutual funds in the world are the ones that paid the highest commissions, right? In other words, they were actively inferior products, 
right? Because they, they basically held the index and they had higher fees, right? But they sold really well because the financial planners got the kickback. Bribe your distributor models are really common and surprisingly they're really, re well, unsurprisingly, they're really common in building materials, right? If you thought your tradesman was honest, you've um, misunderstood the world. So here's the selling proposition. I'm sitting on my deck on a Saturday afternoon having a beer. And let's be honest, this could be me. And my wife's looking at me and saying, you know, you better paint this deck. You know, you've got to oil it. It's for, you know, and you think, stuff it, I'll do it tomorrow. And then she asks you again tomorrow and you say, stuff it, I'll do it next week. And then winter comes and summer comes again. You're sitting on the deck and now she's saying, look, you know, the nails are popping up a little bit. There's it's a hole be a over there. Work. Yeah. But hell, it let's slip another year and then another year. And by this stage, your wife is whining at you quite heavily. And eventually it's falling apart. And so you call the guy in to do it. And he gives you a quote for a timber deck. That's $3,000. And he says, you know, I've got this really U-Butte stuff that looks just like timber, right? But it's really plastic. And you don't have to whack oil it at all. You only have to sweep it once a year. And then he spends a whole lot of time selling it to your wife. And if you can get your wife to agree, you're going to settle this one because he's just solved your marital problems. <laughs> and lo and behold, he'll even give you a quote from the, from the intermediate distributor because there are stacks of intermediate distributors here about how much the timber is and how much the plastic is and, you know, say, well, it's this much more. And you'll gladly pay it and he gets a kickback. Right? And the bribe your distributor model, what he's really doing is solving your marital problems. Right. <laughs> Right, yeah. and you know, I pay a few thousand dollars extra for that. <laughs> right, yep. it's right. It's um, but when we see these sort of massive, mysterious margins, a large amount of the puzzle is to work out why. And once you've worked out why, then you probably should know why how sustainable they are. And. You know, I'd, I have no position in Trek stock because I have absolutely no idea how sustainable a business model this is, right? Um, you know, I, 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 when I wrote the blog post on it, which nobody answered, I said, you know, there's a really great story in here for Good Morning America, right? Because Good Morning America could do this story about how everybody's being ripped off on their deck. And, you know, that would just work beautifully for them, right? And the model would break. Right? Because people talk about that. But there are other you know, examples. For a very, very long time, the fattest margin product in the whole of aerospace was a company called Precision Cast Parts. And Precision Cast Parts, well, it's now owned by Berkshire. It's the big aerospace company. And Precision Cast Parts was a 180 bag of stock before Warren Buffett bought it. So if you'd understood this, you'd have ridden it extremely well. It's the world's most boring name. I mean, who would naturally go look at a company called Precision Cast Parts and think that this is an exciting business? Well, it turns out the main thing that they made was blades for jet engines, which are cast. And they're cast in a kind of clever way. Um, they're cast as a single crystal so that they... Um, make a wax mould of the blade, and this is extremely fine, so people will sit there with the wax mould digging little holes in it. And then they um, cover it in very fine sand and 
some concrete and then coarser and coarser sand and they make a sacri- and melt the wax out and the wax mold has a little dog leg spiral on it and then they pour the hot metal in and then they chill it selectively from the top of the dog leg and the crystals will run around and all run into the wall so that when you've finished you're left with a wax mold that's a single crystal all the other crystals have died during the dog's leg and the reason it has to be a single crystal is that metal's weaker along the crystal breaks and then you can make some metal that you can spin really 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 fast in a jet engine these things weigh eight tons after the centrifugal force of spinning them. and they have uniform strength and they have absolutely uniform strength and then you've got to drill holes in them and you don't want to do, change the metal so you don't want to heat it up so they take use an electrostatic drill and take off one atom at a time for weeks and weeks right and they sell these things for thousands of dollars and the beauty of it is that the determinant of the fuel there are several determinants of the fuel efficiency of a jet engine one of them is how fast it spins the faster the better and one is how hot it is the hotter the better and if you have a perfect single crystal piece of super metal super alloy you can spin it hotter and faster which means that you can change the fuel efficiency of global aviation and if you can change the amount of fuel that global aviation burns you can charge like insane amounts for that because global so aviation burns 100 margin. billion bucks of fuel a year. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So it turns out this little thing called precision cast parts was the most profitable thing in the whole of aerospace. And moreover, it was really hard to change them once they were built into an engine. Trying to get a competitor approved was silly and relative to the cost of global aviation, it was completely silly. So as the engine fleet grew out, the proportion of the engine fleet that was using precision cast parts grew out to the point that it was 75% of the fleet, where they were charging like a wounded bull. Was, you know, if you'd actually understood the metrics of what was going on here, it was an astonishingly good stock and you could model it out for years. Right? Now, that piece where you're solving a real mission-critical problem for someone, you are a small part of a, good, of a big process that's a license to print money. And they're the sort of stocks that I'm really interested in. Now, Precision Cast Parts, when it started, was a small cap. I mean, it finished at $36 billion, but that was after a 180-fold increase in stock price. Mm. Right? This was a little tiny market cap stock that had something. And, you know, I spend, I spend a lot of time trying to work out where the next one of those is. But the critical pattern recognition here is what's going on. It's the, the business model that actually tells you that they have pricing power and proper pricing power. I spent awful lot of time trying to work out, you know, good business models. Um, and the, more, the older I am, the more I det- I'm sure that the end game for more, almost all stocks is just how good the business is. Yeah, and so it's the business model rather than like so you look at management on in terms of your group of shorts. Manage, yeah. The way we, we short people and go long businesses <coughs> is the way I describe it. Right, right. Um, pe- the, the the problem with people is that they're actually harder to read, I think, than the business. Right, people, um, especially the crooks. I had that the few times where we've visited a company we're short and we don't do it normally because this is just pointless. On the other side of the table, I have a a seasoned stock promoter who's a seasoned liar. And I promise you they can lie better than my ability to detect their lies. 
Um, in fact, one of the things that's happened is if I visited companies I'm short, I'm more likely to cover the stock. Really? Right? Because they convince me. Right? I'm just as immune, I'm just as vulnerable to their lies as anybody else. So avoid going to those places that I... Read them, don't read them. Mm-hmm. Right? And physically check every statement. Right? There is a situation where you are reading an annual, you know, a quarterly conference call and they say X and you physically check the number for X. Then you physically check the cash flow for X. Right? And if you've found four lies in the first six statements that you've checked, you know you're right, right? Because what you have is a liar with a history of lying and a history of stocks that go to zero. That's enough, right? We put 30 bips on and short that one. So you talk about, um, you use the, the term promote uh, as a shorthand sometimes, you know, that a stock is a, I see this as a promote. What are the characteristics that you see of a, of, of a promote? A CEO has three legitimate jobs. And think he's a CEO of a big bank. And the three legitimate jobs are, one, he's got to run the business. Two, he's got to run the government, the regulatory structure, etc., you know, the political environment that the business is in. And three, he's got to run the relationship with Wall Street or with the financial markets. And if you're the CEO of JP Morgan, all three of those are part of your job description. If you get the regulatory... If you have get your relations with Washington wrong or your regulators wrong, you're in the world of hurt. If you're borrowing, as they do, about a trillion dollars, right, um, and you can change the cost of that by a basis point, that's so much money that you've just earned your keep as a CEO. right? So you've got to talk to the street. And if you don't run the business, all hell's going to break loose. You've got three legitimate jobs. Now, in some businesses, you should logically be doing almost all running the business. In other businesses, surprisingly, you should be doing almost all running the politics. So, for instance, in Asia, a lot of businesses are got by having good relations with the politicians involved. So, for instance, Australia or America auctioned telephone spectrum. In Asia, they gave it to favoured Chinese businessmen. And the favoured Chinese businessman has an obligation to build a telephone network, but he was given the spectrum. And running the politician is the most important part. If you're going to be given an asset that's worth a billion dollars, that's what you should be doing. Um, most businesses, I would argue, should spend most of their time running the business. Most CEOs should spend most of the time. In a promote, the shorthand is that they spend most of their time running the street. When the CEO's job is to sell shares rather than to run the business, that's a promote. Now, promotes range from flat frauds, companies that literally don't exist, so there is no business to run, right, um, to hopeful things. I mean, there are guys who like finding gold mines, right, and... They raise $5 million to go drill or not, drill a mine, and 95% of the time it's not there. But the CEO is always out there hyping, and he's going to sell $5 million worth of stock every time. It doesn't matter whether the mine's there or not, he's going to sell, or one of his mates is going to sell. And it's not a fraud, because he might actually have some prospective land and he might find a gold mine, and we know a few that have found gold mines, right? 
but the perp is the purpose of the business to raise money to drill for gold or is the purpose of the business to have a stock to sell to people? And I'd argue it's a bit of both, but more to have the stock to sell to people. That's a promote. We find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them in the world. We have been short about 900 stocks in the last 10 years. And we've managed to have a massively diversified short book over the whole bull market and not lose money. And the reason we've had a massively diversified stock book and not lose money is we're aligned with management. Management are there to sell stock and so are we. So let me ask you one thing about a couple of things that are happening in the, in the world out there. One is um, this disinflationary downward pressure on prices in all sorts of categories. Uh, we had the inflation data again this week, David. Weak? Very weak. Discretionary areas, weak. Uh, utilities, all the things you basically can't control the cost of were the ones that basically went up. Uh, so and that looks like it's entrenched at the moment. It's hard to see any uh, any inflationary pulse going through at the moment. And there's a lot of comp uh, competition that's still yet to be uh, played out, particularly in sectors like retail and, and the well, like in Australia. We sure as hell see it in the aggregate numbers. Um, we haven't seen it very much in our stocks. Right? Um, to pick Swedish match, it actually had 7% volume growth and 17% revenue growth in the last quarter. Now, in fact, what happened was that taxes went up in Scandinavia and taxes going up in a tobacco company gives them more, not less, pricing power. All right, so that was what, right, that's the extreme example because we've not, you know, there's nothing else in our portfolio that has ability to raise its prices 10% a year. Right, I mean, that's just absurd. But most of the companies that we own make niche components in big processes. And their price is not a large part of the output price. I'd be very wary about So it's less, much less sensitive. Much less sensitive. If you asked me, you know, GM <coughs> last night, and I've, I've got some friends who are long GM and they're sort of hairy-chested value investors with beards, and they sort of all very self-righteous about how they're good value investors. And now that I've criticised them, I'm certainly not going to name them. But the discussion has been, you know, GM was sort of eight or nine times earnings. And it had pricing pressure, right? And I guess, you know, a, a commodity car is not a small part of a big thing. For most people, it's the second biggest purchase they ever make in their life. Right, the second biggest thing I ever buy. And there's plenty of competition and that pricing pressure is real. The other thing is that if you, whilst you say it in aggregate, you know, the auto part companies still have margins that are historically high and dropping. And the auto part suppliers have margins that are historically high and they haven't dropped yet, but I think they will. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, there's clearly pricing pressure in aggregate and there are certain things that I would not own. You just couldn't persuade me at the moment to own an auto parts company selling differentials or, you know, axles or something like that. I, because some of, I, I remember looking at some of these auto part companies and they had margins of 25%. 
And, you know, Apple, I reckon, can sustain its margin of 25% because it has everything that smells high margin about it. But if you go look at an auto parts company that's got a margin of 20, you've got to wonder why. I'll pick one at exact, just at random, right, right, which is Gentex, which is a company that makes auto-dimming mirrors. And they claim to be the global leader in this, and I don't believe otherwise. And an auto-dimming mirror, if you're driving along the highway in 1980 and a car came up behind you, you used to have to tilt to flick, the, the to flick the mirror. Yeah. And these days, the mirrors have photochromatic glass in them so that when you're driving up the highway, the mirror dims itself. You actually test this. If you go have a look at your mirror, there's going to be a light sensor hole on both sides of the mirror, and you can trick it by shining a torch into it. And so you can make it, a different, as long as you get a differential in light between the front and the back, what will happen is the mirror will go black-white. If I can just point out that this is really important in Australia because Australians don't know how to use the the um, full beams versus oh, the... Oh, yeah. <laughs> believe me. I, it's I've doing the police are around, trust me. I've, <laughs> I, 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 I've been high-beamed more than a few times. <laughs> but um, these auto-dimming mirrors are now ubiquitous. It's pretty unusual that you see a car without one, although I saw a teardown of the Model 3 and it didn't have an auto-dimming mirror in it, had, had a flick mirror, right? And I mean, it was part of the reason why the, the people doing the teardowns thought the margin was so high, right? Because they were just using cheap components. But nonetheless, this auto-dimming mirror is, as far as I'm concerned, ubiquitous. Most people wouldn't even think about asking whether the car has an auto-dimming mirror because it just does. It's not something that you can differentiate on price by. You'd just get terrible reviews if you didn't have an auto-dimming mirror for the car. You know, it's, it's just... The car company Gentex has a margin of 30%. I went to the Shenzhen Electronics Market, which is sort of the world's biggest wholesale electronic, consumer electronics market, and you can go in there and buy 500,000 um, iPhone cables if you want, you know. Somebody will give you an order for a million if you want them. And there were people displaying 25 made-in-China auto-dimming mirrors, which, you know, either for the aftermarket or two OEMs. So, you know, it's not as if the Chinese haven't copied this. It still has a 30% margin. And there are two hypotheses I've got. One is that it's a fraud, and the other one of which is that the margin's going to come down at some stage or other. And... I genuinely don't know how to tell the difference, but it almost makes no difference from the perspective of a short seller, right? So if, have you taken a short position in it? Yeah, I have a short position in it. Um, in fact, it's worse if it's a fraud, right? If it's a fraud, then what's going to happen is the margin won't come down, they'll just fake the numbers for a few more years. So you can be shorted and not win. Whereas if it's not a fraud, the margins are coming down with certainty. So I'll win that way. So in funny sort of way, I hope it's not a fraud. But I, you know, it's one of those scary things. Am I shorting a fraud? In which case, I've got the whole story wrong, right? right? But in fact, you know, this is this is a case of my mis massive mysterious margin. I haven't managed to find anything that um, sustains the idea that this should have a margin fatter than Apple. Can can I ask you? Have you ever? Um, how many times have you, have you been really beaten up on a short? Oh, many, many. We have nine hundred cumulative shorts in the in the history of the fund, 
And the, re the reason we have not so many is that shorting frauds is like the most dangerous thing in the world. I'll give you the iconic example. The iconic examples, you've got two gold mines, one real and one fake. They both claim to have a million ounces in the ground. They both claim to have a plan to mine it starting in the year 2020 and ending in the year 2035, and they both have the same cost structure for this purported mine. The real one is worth about 250 million. It'll trade at about 250 million, and if they turn the mine and it runs at cost and the gold price doesn't change much, that 250 million will turn to 500 million as they mine it out. If the gold price goes up a lot, that 250 million can turn to a billion, right? If the gold price goes down a lot, that 250 million could turn to 10 million, right? But you've got something real there. The fake one has nothing there. You might even know 100% for sure it's fake. And there are certain ways you can do that. I'm not even going to run through all the geology. But you know for 100% sure it's fake. So you go and short 5% of your wealth in it. And now you're about to go bust. And the reason you're going to go bust is it's, it's run by a scumbag. It's not run by a real person. And the scumbag, he has a bunch of unrelated unrelated related parties that hold most of the shares, his friends. In the Wolf of Wall Street, they called those unrelated parties rat holes. And the rat holes owned all the stock, and he was hyping the stock. He might have even been buying it with his own money, saying, you know, this is great stock, I'm buying more. But the rat holes were busily selling it. And his job is to get the rat holes to sell as much shares as they can. And he's lied about having a million ounces, so what's the next thing he does? He says to the market, he's got 10 million ounces. And if the market believes him, this stock is going up tenfold. It's going to, yeah, mm. it's going to as the, the stock market hypers say, the moon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's going to the moon. And you're now short 5% of your wealth or 5% of your fund in this, and the stock's gone up tenfold. Well, unfortunately, you're not short 5% of your fund anymore. You're short 50% of your fund, except it's worse than that because your fund's gone from 100 to 55 because you've lost 45% of your money. So you're short 90-something percent of your fund. And you're going to get put out of business over a single stock on which you're right. Now, being put out of business over a single stock on which I'm right isn't my idea of the way to run my life. Right. And the right size to have this position is about 20 bips. Right. And the reason it's 20 bips is, yeah, look, the worst case, it's going up tenfold. You'll lose a percent or two along the way, but you'll cover some and you'll put some more on the way down. And you'll still be down on the stock. Right. I mean, if it goes, if a stock goes from 10 to zero via 100, I've lost money. Right. And I'm never going to get it all back. Right. I just, I've just lost money. But I'm still in the business, right? And the reason I'm in the business is the stock starts at 20 or 30 bips. Now, the problem with doing it with 20 or 30 bips is you've got to do it hundreds of times, which is why we've done it 900 times in the history of the fund in order to make it work. And the only way we can think of doing it 900 times is by following bad people with computers, which is how we got to the position of what we do, which is follow bad people with computers. But if you've had 900 shorts... You've been completely beaten to smithereens on a few of them, 20 of them, 30 of them, right? I've had shorts that 
started at 30-bit positions, which have cost me cumulatively 1.5% of the fund. Right. And, you know, if it had started at a 3% position, that would have cumulatively cost me 15% of the fund, which is unacceptable. Right. But you ask how many times? Well, we've got 900 shorts. It happens all the time. Right. In fact, if you look at our distribution of wins and losses over shorts, it's hundreds of wins and a couple of really gnarly losses. It's sort of this really, really skewy thing where almost everything we touch turns to crap, which is exactly the right thing. And most of the things that that we lose money on turn to crap after we've covered. Mm. It's like, right, and there's a sort of perennial discussion we have, which is we're short 30 or 40 bips of a stock and it's up five-fold. And it's now one and a half, two percent. And well, Simon will look at me and say, "Yeah, there's another fifty good shorts out there. You go split it." And I say, "But I know this, 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 and this." And he just looks at me and says, "You're being lazy, right? You go find another one." And we do. But you know, nowadays he doesn't even look at me and say, "We've been, I'm being lazy." He just sort of raises his eyebrow a little bit, and I react appropriately. (laughs) You know, he's my risk manager, and a good risk manager, it's a bit like being married. You know, you you do what you're told. So, look, uh, very quickly, you mentioned the moon. Um, the moon. No, not the moon. The moon. It's the always, moon. It's always yeah. the moon. When, when the moon, um, <laughs> it, which is a particular favorite of uh, crypto traders. Uh, very super quickly, uh, you, you don't have a great deal of interest in this. I have no interest in crypto. Um, I will not buy a stock un- or a, a position unless I understand why it's worth owning for five years. The Warren Buffett statement that says you should never buy anything unless you're prepared for the stock market to close for 10 years the day after you buy it is actually not a bad way of running your world and if i look at any crypto i don't have any idea or any insight as to why i would want to own it for a decade right doesn't have a yield doesn't have anything right and if i look at crypto i can't work out how to short it so I'm completely uninterested, although I'm going to tell you I'm interested a little bit. And the reason I'm interested in a little bit is that we find people that used to promote mining stocks now promoting crypto coins. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that I could quite happily short the mining stock. Yeah, $50,000 worth here, $50,000 worth there. But I can't work out how to short the crypto coin. Right? And the shit coins are just taking away opportunities from our short book because it's taking bad people and putting it somewhere I can't short them. <laughs> and so all you people buying shit coins, can you go back and buy bad gold mining stocks <laughs> instead so I've got something to short? Um, look, this has been a fantastic chat. Um, I can't believe we're up against almost an hour already. Uh, our guest this week on the show has been John Hampton, uh, Chief Investment Officer and Founder of Bronte Capital. John, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I've been here as well with David Scott. It's been a very easy day for me. Thank you, John, for uh, for taking the other uh, load off my shoulders today. Yeah, it's been it good. It was a fascinating chat as well. Like, yeah, I've I've learned plenty, and that's a key thing you said. Like, you no, know, always be learning. That's the thing. And I've in my shorter investment career, I've always found that you know to go 
don't learn from other people. Uh, fascinating. I've actually got a few ideas myself, but uh, we'll see what happens now. Yeah, it's, it's been a fascinating chat. And I think I'll probably have to run it through the lawyers, but I'll do that uh, this evening. Um, you've been listening to the Devils of Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan, been here with David Scott and John Hampton from Bronte Capital. You can find us all on Twitter individually. The site's at businessinsider.com.au. You can find the show on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform of choice under Devils and Details. The show is produced by Rick Salter and we'll catch you next time.